Well, almost a month ago now, seems longer than that, I preached a message out of Hebrews chapter 6 in verses 4 through 8, a message that I consider to be one of the most terrifying in all of the Bible, because in, in that passage, the author describes the apostasy, or the falling away, of those within the church who by, by all outward appearances were the real deal, the genuine article. They appeared to everyone, including to themselves, to be genuine believers. They had a profound sense of conversion. They had been once enlightened. They they had learned and knew and taught and seemed to love the Word of God. They had tasted of the heavenly gift and tasted of the good word of God. They had been witnesses of and perhaps even participants in the miraculous workings of the Holy Spirit and power in the midst of the church. Because he says they had been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and had tasted of the powers of the age to come. But they were deceived. And in time, they walked away from Christ. And they rejected his gospel and they denied the faith. And that is, and I pray was, a terrifying reality for us to consider. That it is impossible, or that it is possible rather, to be so convinced, to appear so real, so genuine. So as to deceive everyone in the church and even to deceive yourself and yet still be a fraud, a false believer. But the author didn't even stop there. That would have been scary. But he goes on, unrelenting in the severity of the warning of that passage. And he adds that it is impossible for such people to be renewed to repentance. Impossible. Because they have crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. They've passed the point of no return and they are beyond hope. And the only fate that awaits them is the terrible image described in verse 8. That like worthless soil that yields only thorns and thistles, they will be cursed and they will be burned. Through that message... I hope to provoke within our hearts a profound sense of fear. The fear of unbelief. Before I preached that week, I prayed that that God would cause our hearts to tremble before the terrible reality and possibility of apostasy because it is a clear and present danger in every church. The church of the first century and the church of the 21st century. So many among our ranks in evangelical churches profess faith in Christ and are baptized and follow Jesus for a time only to walk away and deny the faith they once professed. And I wanted us to face up to the reality that is described in verses 4 through 8. Not to gloss over it, not to say, well, that doesn't describe me. 
But to face up to it like he is encouraging them to do, I think that the Holy Spirit was encouraging us to do that. To face up to the reality of apostasy and to fear it. I pray that that it would happen among us what he had exhorted them to in Hebrews 4.1. Look at Hebrews 4.1 with me. Therefore, let us, what? Fear. Let us fear. If, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of us, any one of us, in the pew and in the pulpit, any one of us may seem to have come short of it. Let us fear. What I hoped would happen through that message was that an early warning system would be installed in our hearts, which would sound an alarm. Danger, 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 danger. Anytime we begin to drift away from the Word of God and withdraw from the people of God. Anytime that we begin to be enticed by the world to sell our birthright for the the passing and plastic pleasures that this world offers us. Danger, danger, danger. But, just, just as a smoke alarm is not designed to to blare out that ear-piercing siren all day long, but only when something is burning, only when there is actually danger. So the warning against apostasy that we ran across in our exposition of the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 6, 4-8, through 8, is not intended to cause us to fear and tremble 24-7. It's a warning. It's an alarm. And it is not intended to produce within our hearts a constant state of fear and unrest. It is only designed to begin to sound that warning siren and that alarm of danger when the stale and decaying aroma of sluggishness and apathy begins to waft up into its censers. So, our last Sunday in Hebrews 6, 4-8 through was like installing and testing the apostasy alarm system. But I hope now, I know that I am, I am for me. I've spent time in that text. I preached that text. We connected to that text. And I hope that you've experienced the same thing that I have. I'm satisfied that it's installed and that it works. Because I feared. Just like he told me to. So our purpose this week is to silence the alarm and to enjoy the comfort of the gospel that is held out to us. If you feared as a result of Hebrews 6, 4 through 8, I would say, good, we need the alarm system. It works. We'll check our batteries every now and then about three more times in the book of Hebrews. But Christ did not die that you would live in fear. He died that you would live in joy and in assurance and in encouragement and in comfort and in the steadfast knowledge that I belong to Him. That's what we're going to build this week. But, this raises a question in my mind. The question is this. How can I, how can we, possibly have confidence 
that, that we truly belong to Christ and will persevere to the end when those described in verses 4 through 8, remember those who have once been enlightened, tasted of the heavenly gift, been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted of the good word of God and of the powers of the age to come. Impressive resume. When they fell away and were irrevocably lost. If a, if a powerful experience full of emotions and just dram- dramatic, existential, experiential, man, if that powerful experience of conversion and, and an, a knowledge and an apparent love for the Bible and a participation in the miraculous workings of the Spirit in the midst of the church, if those things are no sure evidence... No infallible evidence that I belong to Jesus. Where can my assurance come? Do you see the problem? Where can I turn for comfort and and an assurance that I am a partaker of of saving grace? That's the question I want to tackle from, from verses 9 through 20 this week. I want to build into us a rock-solid confidence on which we can take our stand in joy this morning. The author of Hebrews knows that he's been harsh. And I know that I've been harsh. I intended to be because he intended to be. He, he admits that he's been harsh. Look at verse 9. Beloved, we're convinced of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation, though we have been speaking in this way. What is this way? Severity. (laughs) Warning. He knows that he's been harsh, but he needed to be. He needed to be stern and he needed to be severe because that's what love for the flock demanded. And And I hope that you felt loved in the warnings that I've given you in the book of Hebrews. Jesus loves you and I love you and that's why we warn you. Love sometimes demands severe warnings. Because the church to which Hebrews had written had grown complacent and sluggish. Verse 12, he says, don't be sluggish. Stop being sluggish. They had grown sluggish. They were immature and dull of hearing, Hebrews 5.11. They were in danger of drifting away from the hope of the gospel, Hebrews 2.1. And thereby neglecting the great salvation found only in Christ, Hebrews 2.3. And so this is why in the midst of a, a soaring discussion of Jesus as the great high priest of the new covenant in the order of Melchizedek, he paused and he, and he left off at Hebrews 5.10 in order to admonish them for their immaturity, that's 5.11 through 6.3, and to warn them against the real, irrevocable, fatal danger of apostasy that's six four through eight and he's going to jump back into the argument of jesus as the high priest of the new covenant in the order of melchizedek in hebrews 7 1 but before he does he gives a very tender word of comfort and encouragement to the church so so he wants them to be aware of the danger of falling falling away. He, he intends to awaken them out of their complacency. He wants them to fear unbelief, but he does not want them to live in the trembling and joyless existence of always wondering if they're truly saved. 
And I don't want that for you. I've been there and it's miserable. I don't want you, any of you, to leave here wondering and trembling and fearing that you're not real. He wants them to realize the joy that comes from the full assurance of faith. And I want the same for us. That's what we're after. We're after the full assurance of faith. Not, not, not a fake assurance. Not an assurance that is, that is grounded in the wrong things. Sinking sands of a, of a past decision or a past experience. But in the rock solid evidence of present and ongoing and persevering grace. In our lives. That's what we're after this morning. We're after joy and we're after assurance. And I think that we can find it in this passage because he gives us two unshakable pillars for our assurance of salvation. If you are here wondering if you're truly saved, I'm, I'm going to give you two tests, two foundation stones upon which you can take your stand. Rest your confidence that your sins are forgiven and that you will be raised with Christ on the last day to everlasting life and joy. So let's attack the passage from that angle. The first pillar of confidence that I, that I offer to you this morning is what I'm going to call the persevering pattern of grace-wrought love, which is kind of a mouthful, but I chose every word very carefully. I'm going to point out to you why. The persevering pattern of grace-wrought love. In verse 9, the author begins this tender word of comfort to those he has just... Well, the only word for it is scolded. (laughs) He scolded them and he's warned them. He says, but beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. Things that accompany salvation even though we've been speaking to you in this way. And before I go on, I want to assure you that I echo that sentiment. I could not honestly say what the author says in verse 9 in every church I've been in. But I'm convinced of better things concerning you. There is life here that I thank God for. So hear this from your pastor who has warned you. I am convinced of better things concerning you. Things that accompany salvation, even though I've been speaking to you in this way. The author is convinced that the congregation to which he writes are, they're not among those who who, who will fall away to destruction, shrink back to destruction, he's going to say in Hebrews 10. Rather, they they are of those who will persevere to faith and be saved. But why? Okay, What what does he base this confidence on? How can he be so sure? Look at verse 10. I'm convinced of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation. Why? Because, verse 10, God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. All right? Now, theologically, we could go wrong in a hundred different directions in this verse. So we're going to approach it with a little bit of a little bit of care, all right? I think that, I think that what we see here are, are four important layers to the confidence that he expresses in verse 10, four layers that we can build into this confidence that we are seeking, all right? The first layer, we're going to put this at the top, the one that is most evident to the, to the visible eye, OK? 
okay? First, he points to their ministry to the saints as the evidence of their saving faith. Do you see it? I am convinced that you have saving faith because of your ministry to the saints. Now, we don't have to wonder about what form this ministry took. He tells us in verse 10, or chapter 10, rather. In chapter 10, verses 32 to 34, he describes their ministry to the saints. He says, but remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. You, you endured persecution, he says, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Here's the, here's the idea of what had gone on in the past and what he says here is still ongoing, okay? Persecution comes to their city. The church, some in the church are arrested and thrown in prison. And in that day, they weren't provided with three square meals, you know, and, and a bed to sleep on. They were on their own and were dependent upon, upon people, friends, family, bringing them food. So those in the church who had not been arrested... They risked being arrested in order to go and minister to the saints who were in prison. Do you see it? Sacrificial love for the saints in order to show solidarity with them, in order to show love to them, in order to minister to their needs. That's what he's talking about. They loved the people of God and they served them in their time of need at great risk and in some cases at great cost to themselves. They had their property confiscated. Things that they had worked for all their life, just taken. Because they loved the people of God. So that's the first layer. They loved and served the saints. That's what he saw, that's why he's convinced. But it goes deeper. Second layer. This service and ministry was their established pattern. It was past, it was present, and ongoing. They had ministered, do you see it, verse 10? And they were still ministering to the saints. So this wasn't a, a past event in their life. They didn't love the saints once upon a time. They loved them and were still loving them. That's where I get the words persevering pattern. It was a persevering pattern of, of love for the people of God. So that's the second layer. Okay, Underneath that he makes it clear that their work and service to the saints, their present and and persevering work and service to the saints was the outflow out of their love for God and for God's name. He says, For God is not so unjust as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward His name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. He says, You loved God and His name and so you ministered to the saints. Which is important because this is what separates it from the love of the world. Lots of people care for folks in prison. But only believers do it out of a love for God's name. That's the distinction. In other words, this is not like some random guy who who helps an elderly lady carry her groceries. Anybody in the world exhibits that kind of love. This was Godward righteousness. Love for God expressed in love for God's people. Which makes it a fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. 
And it is a fruit that is only produced in the hearts of those who have been born of the Spirit. This is the kind of sacrificial, Spirit-produced, Christ-exalting, God's-name-glorifying love that Jesus spoke of in John chapter 13 when He said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, so you also love one another. Listen. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The only way that the love of the saints is going to show the people of the world that we belong to Jesus is is if it is of a different kind than the love that is found in the world. That's the kind of love we're talking about. All right? So so we've had three layers. He, He knows that they're saved because they love and minister to the saints in prison. Underneath that, it wasn't just a past event of of ministry to the prisoners but it was past and present and ongoing it was a is a present and persevering pattern okay underneath that it wasn't just love for the people of god it was love for the people of god that flows out of love for god himself it was the fruit of the spirit which is love but he even goes one layer underneath that and this is a crucial point i want you to stick stick with me on this notice that his confidence in their salvation is not in them. It is not in their work and their love. Rather, it is in the justice of God. It is in the righteousness of God in remembering their work and love. Do you see it? It is a crucial point. He does not say this. He does not say, I know that you're saved because you love God and you love people. That is not what he says. He says, I know that God will be righteous and just so as to remember your love for him and your love for his people. And in those two differing statements lies a very crucial theological distinction. Let me me go over it again. He does not say, I know that you're saved because you love God and you love people. He says, I know that God is righteous and he will remember your love for God and your love for the people. What's the difference? There is a massive difference in saying on the one hand, I see that you love God and that you love people. And therefore, I am convinced that your love is so strong that it's going to endure to the end. You're going to love God and love people all the way to Jesus coming. I see it in you, and the love that I see in you is so strong Nothing's going to destroy it. Okay? That's what he could be saying, but it's not what he's saying. There's a difference between that and saying this, on the other hand. I see that you love God and that you love people. And I know that such Christ-exalting, God-honoring, self-sacrificing love is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And is produced in you by a working of God's grace and not by self-effort, and not by human striving. Therefore, I am convinced that if God has worked this grace in you to produce the love that that I see, I am convinced that in his righteousness and justice, he's going to continue on working at it because I know this about my God, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful and righteous and just to complete it. You see the difference? One looks at love 
and sees it emanating out of the goodness of man and out of the strength of, of man's resolve and is convinced that, that man's goodness and man's resolve is so strong that it's going to make it. That is no confidence. There is no confidence to be found in you. None. But that's not what he's saying. He is saying, I see love. I see that it's a fruit of the Spirit. I see that it is produced in you by God's grace in the heart of a helpless but believing people. And I am convinced that the same God who began that work of grace will see it completed in his people to the glory of his name. So one exalts the strength of man to persevere to the end. And the other exalts the strength of God's grace to preserve his people to the end. That's where his confidence. His confidence is in God for them. So I take away from this that we can have confidence in Christ, confidence that we are in Christ, confidence that we are truly saved and not like the guys in Hebrews 6, 4 through 8, and therefore confidence that we will endure to the end and receive the promise if we see in our lives a persevering pattern of grace wrought love love for god's name that manifests itself in love for god's people what does that look like i thought about that over the last couple of weeks it looks like sacrificial burden bearing unbreakable bond of the spirit sharing love that transcends racial cultural, and socioeconomic bounds. There's a lot of big words. Here's what I mean. It is love for people that you otherwise would not love. It is love for people that you share nothing in common with but one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father who is over all and in all and through all. It is love for people that you disagree with. It is disagreeing with brothers and sisters in the church over things, important things, but saying, but I love you. And I am committed to the unity of this body, and I am committed to you, in spite of our differences, real differences, crucial differences, differences that matter, but I'm committed to you, because I love you. It is love that in, in the midst of a family, right, families hurt one another. They say things that, that, that affect us in very deep emotional ways. And it is saying, I'm not going to hold that against you. I'm not going to hold a grudge against you. I'm not going to hold this bitterness. I'm going to love you. Because we share one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. It is seeing a brother or sister in need, okay? In their, in their case, it was in prison. In the case of some brothers that we met in, in, in Cuba, it's the same thing. And it is saying, I'm, I'm going to be with you to the end. I'm not going to abandon you. But I'm going to love you, which manifests itself in service to you, meeting your needs, sharing your burdens, even at great cost to myself. We're talking about love that is different from the love of the world. 
By this kind of love will all men know that you're my disciples. Flip that around and make it personal to you. By this kind of love, you can know that you belong to Jesus. The persevering pattern of grace wrought love. If you see that past, present, and ongoing work of grace in your life, then you may be confident that the same God who supplied you with that grace in the past and in the present will supply you with that grace in the future and you will endure to the end. So by faith in God's grace, I encourage you to persevere in the love of the saints, in this work of love, and you will find your assurance increasing. And you will find it strengthening, which is the promise of verses 11 and 12. Look there. We desire that each one of you show the same diligence. What diligence? Ministering to the saints. We desire that each of you show the same diligence so as, so that you may realize the full assurance of hope until the end. Do you see the connection between assurance and service? The connection between assurance and a persevering pattern of grace wrought love? So that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So that's the first pat. This is the first pillar of our confidence. The second is this. It is a patient faith in the blood-bought promise. Another phrase in which every word is carefully chosen. Patient faith in the blood-bought promise. At the end of verse 12, the author says that he wants them, and, and I want us, to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. All right? So the saved, those who inherit the promises are those who believe faith and those who keep believing patience. Faith and patience, we inherit the promise of salvation. So a a present, persevering, patient faith is the second ground of our confidence in Christ. But if you allow me to make a theological distinction, I would say that in reality the two are really one. Because love flows out of faith. Faith is the only sure ground of our assurance since the fruit of love grows out of the tree of faith. And both faith and its fruit, which is love, are works of God's grace. So that from him and through him and to him are all things. Shorthand, if you want confidence this morning, place your faith in the grace of God. But for the sake of this text, the two questions before us today are these. Do you trust God's promise And does your faith that trusts God's promise produce the fruit of love? Those are the tests. In verses 13 through 15, the author provides an example of one who through faith and patience inherited God's promise. All right, verse 13. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise, all right? The reference here is to the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 22, verses 16 and 17, which was the occasion of Abraham's sacrifice of his only son, Isaac, or the son of the promise, anyway. Earlier in Genesis, you remember that God had made a spectacular promise to Abraham that through him, God would bring forth a people with whom he would enter into an everlasting covenant. They would be his people and he would be their God and he would dwell in their midst in a land that he gave them. 
That was the promise made to Abraham. Through the many years and the many decades, this promise was unfulfilled as Abraham and Sarah grew older and older and continued to be barren and childless. Yet Abraham patiently believed God's promise. Sometimes his faith was stronger, and sometimes his faith was weaker. And sometimes your faith will be stronger, and sometimes your faith will be weaker. What we're looking for is not perfect faith, we're looking for patient faith, persevering faith. Because it's faith and patience that obtain the promise, right? That's what he has here. So Abraham patiently believed, but he never He never stopped trusting that God would be faithful to the promise. As Paul puts it in Romans 4, that God was able to bring life out of death. Whether out of the death of Sarah's womb or out of the death of the sacrifice that he was getting ready to make. Finally, Abraham and Sarah gave birth to a son. They named him Isaac. And God revealed that Isaac would be the child of the covenant. The one through whom the promise would be fulfilled. But then in Genesis 22, God commanded something mind-blowing of Abraham. He said, I want you to take your son, your only son, whom you love, your only begotten, beloved son, and I want you to kill him on the top of Mount Moriah. Now, the author is going to deal with that testing of Abraham's faith later in Hebrews 11. We'll deal with it then, but you know the story. You know that Abraham trusted God. He believed that God would be faithful to his promise, and he offered up his son. But just, just before the knife fell, he heard the voice of the angel, and God intervened with a substitute, a sacrificial ram to die in the place of the covenant child. And after this, this testing, and after this triumph of, of Abraham's faith, God again spoke His word of promise that he had spoken so many years ago, but this time it was different. This time he confirmed it with an oath. He said, by myself, I have sworn. I will greatly bless you. I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand of the seashore. Your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. And Abraham obtained the promise with a patient and persevering faith. That's what verses 13 through 15 are about. The author of Hebrews then says in verse 16, For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with an oath given as confirmation, it is an end of every dispute. In other words, men, men are not trustworthy. We are prone to lie and to cheat and to steal, and therefore, when we make promises to one another, it's hard to believe. And so often, we will confirm the truthfulness of our promise by an oath. We will swear by one greater than ourselves, often God. I swear to God I will fulfill this promise is what we say. And, and what we're doing is we are invoking him as a witness to our promise and, and, and we are putting ourselves underneath his accountability should we break it. Don't say I swear to God unless you mean it. But Numbers twenty three nineteen says God is not a man that he should lie nor son of man that he should change his mind. Has he not said and will he not do? Has he not spoken and will he not make it good? Right, so God's not like us. We're liars and cheats and thieves. And he's not. So why does he have to swear? Why does he have to give an oath? 
His word needs no confirmation. He speaks, and that word of promise is sufficient to secure our faith. But he does. He swears by himself to Abraham. Why? Verse 17. Because in the same way, God, desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose. Who are the heirs of the promise? Show my hand a little early. You. He wanted to show you the unchangeableness of his purpose. So he interposed with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. So he swore by himself for us, for you. He made a spectacular promise, confirmed it with an oath, and these two things, the promise and the oath, being strong and unbreakable because God cannot lie, we, the heirs of the promise made to Abraham, we, those who have taken refuge in Abraham's seed, who is Christ, so that we, this morning, January the 11th, 2015, would have strong encouragement, rock-solid confidence and unshakable assurance in the hope set before us. God swore by himself so that you would not doubt your salvation. Because our assurance rests upon a foundation. It rests upon a rock of God's unchangeable promise and his unchangeable oath. His oath, his covenant, his blood supports me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. That's where he's headed. So before we close with verses 19 and 20, here's what I want to do. Very quickly, I want you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. And we're going to get a little help understanding what's going on. We're going to make it personal for us. Two questions that I want to answer from Galatians 3 and Hebrews 6, tying them together. Two questions are these. What is the promise and who are the heirs? What is the promise and who are the heirs? Okay? We're searching that answer so that we can know if the hope belongs to us in Hebrews chapter 6. What is the promise and who are the heirs? Number one, what is the promise made to Abraham? Look with me at Galatians 3, verses 6 to 9. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Are you of faith? Then you're the son of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, that's us, he preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith, are you of faith? Then you are blessed with Abraham, the believer. So the blessing which Abraham received was justification. Verse 6, the gift of righteousness for unrighteous people received by faith. That blessing of justification was promised to Abraham's sons, which included the Gentiles and all the nations of the earth who are of faith. All those who are of faith, Gentile or Jew, are Abraham's descendants and are recipients of the promise. The promise is righteousness. Not of our own, not through the law, the righteousness of Christ received by faith. That's the promise. The promised blessing of this righteousness or justification rests upon a rock. And that rock is the curse-bearing, blood-shedding death of Jesus Christ. Galatians 3, 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, 
having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, what's the blessing of Abraham? It's righteousness, justification, might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. This is where I get the word, a blood-bought promise. God swore to Abraham, I'm going to give the gift of righteousness to unbelieving sinners, whether Jew or Gentile, and I'm going to provide that righteousness through the curse-bearing, blood-bought promise of my son. It's a blood-bought promise. Christ died on the cross to take away our sin and our curse in order that we, the unrighteous, would receive from God the righteousness of His Son and the gift of His Spirit. That's the promise. Now, who are the heirs of this blood-bought promise? Look at Galatians 3.7. Be sure then that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Galatians 3.9. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Galatians 3.14, in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Believing Gentiles are the heirs of Abraham. Galatians 3.29, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. We, this morning, are the heirs of the promise, and the promise is justification. We who have fled to Jesus for refuge from the righteous judgment and wrath of God to come. We who have gone to Christ and traded our unrighteousness for His righteousness. We are the heirs of the promise. We are the children of Abraham. And God swore an oath to Abraham so that we would have assurance of the blessing of justification. This is the hope that God wants you, believer, To take hold of this morning. He swore by himself. 4,000 years ago. So that this morning. You the heirs of the promise. Would have strong encouragement. To take hold of a hope. And the hope is this. The fulfillment. Of that promise. Of justification. It is that Christ Jesus has died He has suffered to remove God's wrath and curse from you. Take hope this morning, believer. Christ has died to take away your curse and to remove God's wrath from you. It is the hope that God has justified us through faith in Christ, that Christ's perfect righteousness has been imputed to us. So take hope this morning, believer. Because you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And no accusation against you can stand. It is the hope that Jesus through his death has claimed us as his own. And will raise us on the last day. And will bring us into a new and everlasting dwelling place. Which is the new heavens and the new earth. Where God will dwell in the midst of his people. And forever we will be his people. And he will be our God. And he will wipe every tear from our eyes. And Jesus Christ will make all things new. So take hope this morning. Struggling believer. Because you are going to be raised into an everlasting existence in which there is no sin and no death and no mourning and no crying and no disease and no cancer and no Alzheimer's and and nothing of this cursed and broken world is is going to ever touch you again. That is our hope. 
That is our hope this morning and is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And we dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. If you want, if you want assurance this morning, you trust in Christ and in nothing else. He then concludes with an image that's intended to increase our assurance. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. Oh, God, how I wish I had stumbled upon this anchor ten years ago. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. A hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And with that, he's right back where he was a chapter and a half ago. Like nothing's happened. His argument for the supremacy of the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. But let's close this morning by dwelling on that image. It's the image of an anchor. So I want, you to, I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to picture, if you will, a huge, heavy anchor of the kind that you would find aboard a massive ship. You got it? Only instead of being dug down deep into the sands on the ocean floor, it reaches up into the heavenly temple. Behind the veil that separates sinners from a holy God. And it is lodged securely to the mercy seat, which is the very throne of God. You got it? And beside this mercy seat stands Jesus. Your great and everlasting high priest. And on this mercy seat is sprinkled blood. Blood that has atoned for the sins of men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Anyone, anywhere, anytime who puts their trust in Christ. You, that blood is for you on that mercy seat in which is secured the anchor of our hope. Making atonement for our every sin and he stands at the right hand of the Father continually interceding for you and pleading your case. And attached to this anchor that is within the veil, that is lodged in the mercy seat, on which is sprinkled blood, and besides which stands the high priest, there is a heavy chain. And that heavy chain is reaching down out of heaven, and it is reaching down to you. Now, with your eyes closed, this is where our theology of sovereign grace is going to shine through so brilliantly, so vitally. You are not left to your own strength and your own devices to grasp a hold and to maintain your grip on that chain. Because storms are fierce and the waves are strong and our strength is so weak. Where's the hope in saying, here's the chain, hold on? No. That chain is securely fastened to your is as securely fastened to your soul as it is secured to the mercy seat. So if you want hope this morning, if you want assurance this morning, I want you to look down into your hands 
and see if there's a chain there. See if your hope is in Christ. Because if it is this morning, today, right now, if your hope of salvation is in Christ, you can be absolutely assured that it is securely fastened to your soul and it is securely fastened to the mercy seat and that all those who have been foreknown and predestined and called and justified will be glorified. So what we're invited to do this morning is to hold fast to the chain of the anchor that is already holding fast to us. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness seems to hide His face, I rest on His unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, His covenant, His blood supports me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. I ask you this morning, beloved, is that your hope? Did I just recite the cry of your heart? Because if I did, you are saved. I don't care about your story. I care about your story, but not in the realm of assurance. (laughs) Whatever your story is, wherever you've been, whatever you've done, no matter how badly you've struggled, no matter how weak your faith is, I ask you, did I just describe the cry of your heart? Because if I did, you are saved. And you are safe and you are secure, and you have an anchor that is attached to your soul and is secured to the mercy seat and is covered in the blood of Christ. If I just describe the cry of your heart, then you may have every confidence that the last verse of that hymn is true for you as well. When he shall come with trumpet sound, Glory to God, I will then in Him be found. Dressed in His righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock we stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Beloved, I invite you to stand together this morning. We're going to stand on the solid rock together and we're going to